6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 2 through chapter 6, verse 8. Verse 17, Then shall the lambs feed after their manner in the waste places, the fat ones shall sojourners eat. Woe unto them who draw iniquity with cords of vanity, and sin as it were a cart rope. It's interesting how sin loves company. It's interesting how sin draws you in. A little bit leads to more. You can build on that yourself. You get the flavor of it. Verse 19. Let's say, let him make speed and hasten his work, that we may see it, and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near come that we may know it. There again, another one of these 25 occasions when Isaiah uses this unusual title, the Holy One of Israel. Woe unto them who call evil good and good evil and put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Wow. Does that summarize the theology, the philosophy of our world today? Value relativism. We don't speak of good and evil. We speak of a set of values. They have their values. We have ours. It's in a pursuit of tolerance and, and uh, social peace. We deal in value systems. It's the jargonese of today, but it leads to that insidious thing called value relativism. And if any of you have uh, an interest in this or have not read Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind, interesting book. Interesting book. The ellipsis that has occurred on our campuses over the years. In our pursuit of openness. We've embraced value relativism, the denial of absolutes. Not realizing that once you do that, that also implies that there's nothing to learn from history. Because all things are relative. That means the historic classical roots of Western civilization have nothing to offer. There are no answers. So why search for answers? And that whole system has caused our graduates in our colleges to have closed minds. They don't know the great books. They don't know the Western. Even, in, even just arguing in secular terms. It's interesting that Alan Bloom points out how our society is decaying and coming apart because of the, our denial of absolutes. And he's not dealing from a theological basis, at least not evidently in his book. But it's interesting, the, the closing of the American mind. Must reading if you have a sensitivity in this area. Woe unto them who call evil good and good evil. Boy, does that characterize our value system. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 19, For as written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. 
to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But unto them who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. What a strange phrase. The foolishness of God. How can you even put that in one sentence? God is foolish. And yet that's what Paul is saying. The foolishness of God. And you can go through the whole scripture and notice how God seems to reach out to use foolish things to humble man. All the way through. He decides to wipe out the earth, save eight people, by building a boat. That's pretty weird. Yeah, really. Samson destroys the Philistines with what? The jawbone of an ass. You go right through, all the way through. You've got... um, uh, uh, Naming the Syrian general going to Elisha to be saved. Go we wash in the muddy river seven times. You got to be kidding. God uses that all the way through. As you read the Bible, you you can just be sent. You just sense that God's often, frequently, almost always, uses strange mechanics. The foolishness of God. And what's the ultimate absurdity? The ultimate foolishness that the entire cosmos is going to be judged and measured and related to. A Roman cross on a hill in Judea 1900 years ago? That mankind will be measured, judged, and dealt with on the basis of their relationship to one hanging on that cross. You see, that's what verse 18 says. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. To whom is it foolish? To them that perish. But unto us who are saved, it is the power of God. The foolishness of God. Verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, how not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. For God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised with God chosen. Yea, the things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are. Why? So that no flesh should glory in His presence. Anyway, back to Isaiah. Down to verse 22. Woe unto them who are mighty and drink wine, the men of strength who mix strong drink, who justify the wicked for reward, who take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and as the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossoms shall go up as dust, and because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against this people, and he hath stretched forth his hand against them and smitten them, and the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. He will lift up an ensign to the nations from far, and he will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. And behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. He's actually referring to the Assyrians. The Assyrians are going to take away the northern kingdom, and the Babylonians later the southern kingdom. None shall be weary or stumble among them. None shall slumber nor sleep. Neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed, nor the latchet of their shoes be broken. Whose arrows are sharp and all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves shall be carted like flint and their wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring shall be like a lion and their roar shall like young lions. Yea, they shall roar and lay hold of the prey and shall carry it away safely and none shall deliver it. In that day they shall roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one look into the land, behold darkness and sorrow and light is darkened in the heavens thereof. That's Isaiah calling the shots that are coming where the Lord is going to judge his people that have disintegrated. 
the northern kingdom in its way, but specifically here focusing on the southern kingdom. That leads us to chapter 6. And chapter 6 is not necessarily, by the way, in chronological order. What happens in chapter 6 could have happened earlier, but here Isaiah takes occasion to recount it. King Uzziah intruded upon the priest's office, got leprosy, and died. Sad situation. And Isaiah says here, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Brief little verse. Boy, is there a lot in here. I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne. We'll take this occasion to take a look at a few other places where the writer is treated to a perception, a vision, an insight into the throne of the Almighty God, the creator of the universe. We glibly talk about that and we'll see in the idioms here, but before we jump into that, let's stop and think for a minute how glibly that phrase is and yet how awkward that is. Because remember now, God is not living in three dimensions. We are. All we know are three dimensions. Three and a half, really, if you count time. Time isn't a full dimension. We can only go in one direction. You move forward and look back. You can't look forward or move back, right? I get some blank stares. How many remember tomorrow? Okay. Oh, yeah? We'll talk later, yeah. See, we really, in in a sense of speaking, time is nonlinear and time is... uh, so the point, but let's set that issue aside. We'll get to three or four dimensions. The point is you and I are no height with length, uh, and breadth. I mean, that's it, right? We're three dimensions. And God is not limited to three dimensions. From particle physics, we know he lives in at least 11. And it's naive and foolish to limit him to those. Now, I happen to believe that he lives in the Hilbert space, which the mathematician will describe as a, has an infinite number of dimensions. That makes more sense to me somehow. As we tread this ground, let's do so cautiously, because recognize we're going to move into hyperspace. We're moving into something more than three dimensions. So Isaiah says, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train. Now the word in the Hebrew is shul. It says train here. That's equivalent to the word hem. And this is one of those places that I would encourage you, just to, to show you how it can be fruitful, to do a word study on these things. The Greek word, or the Hebrew word is shul. It means hem, border, fringe, the bottom edge of a skirt or train, right? Now, in the ancient world, to cut off the hem was to strip one of his personality and authority and so forth. A husband could divorce his wife by cutting off the hem of her robe in the old, in the old cultures. A nobleman could authenticate his name on a clay tablet by pressing his particular hem on the clay tablet. It was like a signature. It's like a seal. This gives us a new insight when David cuts the hem of Saul's garment in the cave. Remember when he's sleeping, he cut Saul? He cut the hem of it because he cut off his genealogy that was embroidered in the hem. That was his symbol of kingship. And that's why David later repented of that. Okay? He was conscious stricken. That's all in 1 Samuel 24 if you want to look that up. The fringes on the Levitical garments in ancient Israel. Numbers 15, Deuteronomy 22, uh, Exodus 28. God's covenant with Israel. God says in Ezekiel 16 and uh, Exodus 39, I will spread my shul over thee. That was his way of putting his authority, his, his mantle, his protection, his covering on Israel. Joseph's coat of many colors. It wasn't many colors. It was a seamless robe with a special hem, which implied a, a position of privilege. Jesus' seamless rope that was never torn. The temple veil was torn. Jesus' robe was not. They gambled for it, remember? They wouldn't tear it. 
The Roman soldier didn't know why. It was because his priesthood is without end. Remember when the woman with an issue of blood wanted to touch the hem of his garment? Why the hem of his garment? Because that's where conceptually was his authority. He was on his way to Jairus, the Jewish daughter, to save her. The woman had to be a Gentile because she had an issue of blood. If it was Jewish, she wouldn't be in the group trying to get through. So here's, and they're both 12, she had an issue of blood 12 years. Jairus' daughter was how old? The Holy Spirit ties that together for you so you don't miss the allegorical implication. Jesus on his way to save Israel by faith saves the Gentile woman. You've been through that. That's by way of review. Ruth and Boaz. Remember when Ruth... The Gentile ultimate bride-to-be of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, asks him to put his hem over her. She's not propositioning him in the middle of the night. He, she's putting the claim of the Leverite marriage on him. And he accepts. If he can solve the other problem, and you know the story of Ruth, if not, dig into it. And that's just a little background. And here in Isaiah chapter 6, we have the shul again. Filled the temple. Verse 2, and above it stood the seraphim, whatever they are. Each one had six wings. That's interesting. We'll discover the chariot. Them also have six wings. Scholars are divided. This is the only place the word seraphim appears. Some scholars believe the seraphim and the cherubim are just two words for the same creature. And I lean that way, but I wouldn't insist on it. And yet we'll also notice there are some differences. But whether those differences are discriminatory or not, we're not sure. Above, stood the, above what? Above the temple. Stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. Two covered his face, two covered his feet, and two, with two he did fly. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The, the, the cherubim are also, we'll notice when we look them up, also continually proclaiming and protecting and exerting his holiness. Holy, holy, holy. Why three holies? Trinity? Interesting, huh? And the post of the door moved with the voice of him who cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Notice Isaiah's reaction, and it's universal. Same thing's true of Daniel, same thing's true of John. When, he see, when confronted with the throne of God, what is the response? Excitement? Elation? Joy? No. Isaiah said, Then I said, I, woe is me. Why? For I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The reaction of Isaiah when he sees the throne of God is to be crushed with the consciousness of the gap between the righteousness of God and his own sinfulness. God deals with that. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me having a live coal in his hand which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. We know from Leviticus chapter 6, the altar was always burning, never allowed to go out. That live coal is touched on his lips. Now he's speaking idiomatically here, I'm sure, but nevertheless, the point is, um, he laid it upon my mouth and he said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Praise God. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Notice the us. That's plural. God says, Whom shall I send? It's not like Moses where he says, Hey, I'm going to send you. Not a command. It's a question. Hey, who will go? 
Jeremiah says, I'm too young. Moses says, I'm a stammering lips and of a slow tongue, right? What does Isaiah say? Got his hand up. Send me. I'm ready. Then said I, here am I. Send me. That's our kind of guy, isn't it? The throne of God. We might take a quick look at Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10. About verse 5 in chapter 1, and out of the midst of it, that is the throne of God, came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Everyone had four faces. Everyone had four wings. Their feet were straight feet, and the sole of the feet was like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled with the color of burnished bronze. And they had the hands of a man under their wings and the four sides, and the four had faces like their wings. And their wings were joined one to another. And they turned not when they went. They went everyone straight forward. I'm not going to get into the whole Ezekiel vision here, but notice verse 10. As for their likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man, the face of a lion. On the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and they four also had the face of an eagle. There are four faces mentioned here, a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. Rather weird, isn't it? A four-faced thing. And the more you read this vision, I'll let you go. And there's also all the way through here, down to verse 13, there's the coals of fire. There's lots of parallels. I'll let you study the parallels. So pop over to Ezekiel chapter 10. In chapter 10, we have a vision of God's glory. And in verse 2, you have the coals of fire again between the cherubim, which is an interesting parallel. You can go through this on your own. They also had four faces in verse 14. Except we don't have one of a man, we have, or ox, we have a cherub, whatever that is. A face like a face of a man, a lion, and an eagle. Whatever that means, so we can go on here. But again, verse 21, four faces apiece, four wings, and so on. Daniel chapter 7, you can put in your notes, we'll, in the interest of time, pop right over to Revelation 4. John is again, like the others, treated to a vision of the throne of God. The seven letters, seven churches are now behind us. We go to Metatauta, chapter 4, verse 1. I looked, behold, a door was open in heaven. The first voice I heard was, was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me. Come up here, and so on. Verse 6, And before the throne there was a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the midst of the throne, and round about the throne, were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. By the way, the full of eyes is also the Old Testament. even forgot to pull that out. The first living creature was like a lion. The second like a, the living creature was like a calf, or an ox, if you will. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings. That's like Isaiah, isn't it? About him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not, they are not saying, Holy, holy, holy. There's the three holies again. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And when these living creatures give glory and honor, and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fell down before him that is seated upon the throne, and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast down their thrones, and so on it goes. Twenty-four, it's interesting. One thing, I was going to ask it as a question, I'll just give you the answer. If you notice the Old Testament... Between Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel and uh, Revelation, you'll see a lot of similarities, some differences. Especially Daniel 7 and, and, and Ancient of Days and all that's very similar to Revelation 4. But there's one thing that occurs only in the New Testament. That's the 24 elders. They're, in, they're invisible in the Old Testament. And there's lots of other reasons why most scholars lean to the idea that those 24 elders, who rep- the only place 24 occurs is the priesthood and 24 courses, they are kings and priests, and the only people who are kings and priests of the church. And so many scholars, not all, but many scholars, ascribe to the 24 elders the church. And what's interesting is the church is not in the Old Testament according to Ephesians 3, and it's interesting that the 24 elders are invisible in, in, the, in the visions of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. 
which tend to, not a proof, but it tends to be seen that way. What I'd like to do, I'd like to share with you a few possibilities about the throne of God, and it's easier to do with uh, graphics. We'll start by talking a little bit about the tabernacle. These are in feet here to give you a rough perspective. It hangs on how big a cubit is. A cubit was somewhere between 14 and 25 inches, depending on what authorities. We generally treat it as about 18 inches. And if so, the tabernacle was a, a, an enclosure about 75 feet on the side and 150 feet long, inside of which, as you entered the one gate, Jesus made a... Everything in the tabernacle, every detail, speaks of the person of Jesus Christ. I am the door. Anyone that comes any other way is a thief and a robber. The brazen altar is the place of sacrifice. The brazen altar sacrifice. After you sacrificed, you washed in the laver. The laver represents the Word of God. Now we are clean through the washing of the water by the Word. You're washed two ways. You're washed once judicially. It's interesting that in, in, we presently are washed by the Word. In Revelation, we see the glassy sea where the saints are standing on it. So the Holy Spirit's dealing with a pun. Here we wash in it, there we stand on it. In either case, it's the Word of God. But as you go forward to the tabernacle proper, that's this portable building made of vertical planks that were made of acacia wood wrapped with gold and then, and then uh, horizontal poles giving it rigidity. You had roughly a 15 by 45 foot portable building covered with four different coats of things. But I won't get into that here. As you entered this, if you were a priest on the right, you saw the table of showbread, two piles, six each. That's 12 loaves of bread changed every Shabbat. On the left, you had the, it says candlestick. That's unfortunate. I meant to put uh, lampstand, but the menorah. The, uh, the oil sor- uh, lit uh, source of illumination, built of a solid piece of gold, a main branch, and say, I am the vine, you are the branches, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life, and so on. The altar of incense. The altar of incense. That's uh, about a three-foot-high thing, what they burn incense. Incense was analogous or spoke of prayers, prayers of intercession. It's also kind of interesting that when Elijah, there's a legend when Elijah uh, was translated, his mantle, his cloak, his power and authority deferred to Elisha. And Elisha, of course, uh, had his mantle. When Elisha died, we understand that the mantle uh, was put in the, uh, stored inside of this three-foot-high appliance called the uh, Golden Altar. We also know, interestingly enough, the one link I've been able to establish on this strange legend I'm tracking down is that the Golden Altar was available in Herod's Temple. The Ark of the Covenant was, but the Golden Altar was, interestingly enough. When Zechariah is officiating as a priest, we discover that, of course, he was in the holy place. And uh, the story is, is that he was instructed and did take the mantle of Elijah out of the altar of incense. And the story would have it that John the Baptist was wearing the mantle of Elijah, which puts a whole different complexion on the statement that Jesus Christ says that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He actually was wearing Elijah's mantle. That's why when in John chapter 2, is it 2 or 1 anyway, when chapter 2, when they... Uh, there was, he, was, he drew such a crowd that uh, the temple authorities had to send an inquisition to find out what was going on. Bear in mind, you know, that's a, a day's walk from Jerusalem to Jericho. In the, in the Jordan where John was baptized. That's a long way to go where the temple authorities were having attendance problems. Uh, they wanted to find out what was going on. That may be part of the reason. Anyway, the tabernacle speaks of the throne of God. Here's the, the Holy of Holies, the, the Ark of the Covenant. The lid had the two cherubim. God is spoken of as an idiom of God. He's spoken of he that dwelleth between the cherubims. The Shekinah glory actually entered. When Solomon dedicated his temple, the Shekinah glory entered the temple. The priests couldn't even get in there for a while. It was so thick and, and heavy. So that's the guts. That's the center of the camp of Israel. Let's talk a little further about the camp of Israel. The tabernacle was at the center of the camp. 
And it, the opening of the tabernacle faced east. We had Moses and Aaron and the priests to the east side. Okay, to the south side, you had the Kohathites, then the Gershonites, then the Merites. These three families of the Levites had specific duties having to do with the tabernacle. And I'll come to that in a little bit. But the main point is, in the center, we had the tabernacle and the tribe of Levi, right? Around the camp, you had the 12 tribes. Now, right away, you need to, for those of you that may be new to this, I'll point out, how can you take the Levites out and still get 12? I thought there's 12 tribes. No, there's really 13. That's the rub. Ephraim and Manasseh, together were the tribe of Joseph. So if you want 12, you can lump those two together and have 12 counting Levi. For the order of march and for certain, several other purposes, there's about 10 times the 12 tribes are listed in the Bible. Sometimes you count one, sometimes not. Sometimes you count Levi, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you count Dan. Sometimes, the point is, how can you always get 12? Well, because you can play games with Ephraim and Manasseh. You follow me? There's actually an alphabet of 13 to play with, if I may put it that way. Follow me? Okay. Now, the point I'm getting at is, is that when they camped, they grouped themselves, the 12 tribes grouped themselves in camps of three tribes each. The tribe of Judah, the tribe of Issachar, and the tribe of Zebulun were instructed to camp together, and this collection of three tribes were to rally around the tribal standard of Judah. Each of the 12 tribes has a standard. Each of the 12 tribes had a staff with a standard. The eastern group of Issachar, Judah, and Zebulun would rally around the ensign of Judah, which was a lion, and they would camp here. Over to the west, we had Reuben, Simeon, and Gad, and they would rally around Reuben, and they were known collectively as the camp of Reuben. To the west, we had Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, and they would rally around the tribal standard of Joseph, or Ephraim, which was an ox. And to the north, we had Naphtali, Dan, and Asher. They were known as the camp of Dan, and they'd rally around, and it had different symbols. But at one time, the dominant one was an eagle. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.